My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be able to make friends. I'm just trying to save you a little money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate, teach you, explain how things like this happen today. So call me, 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Worrisome day. The war between Israel and Hamas, almost one week old, has entered a new phase where Israel's warning more than one million Gaza Strip residents to leave northern Gaza in 24 hours, presumably to ready for a ground invasion. The uncertainty here caused many traders to close out their positions, believing nothing positive can possibly happen to this phase. So why not sit on the sidelines for the weekend and put your money back to work on Monday? I get that. That's what I used to do. I was a trader. But we're investing on this show. And that's why many of the standout earnings reports ultimately got ignored that shouldn't have. United Health, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, they reported numbers that were initially well-received, but as fears of a conflict spun out of control, their stocks all pulled back from the morning highs. Sell, sell, sell. In the end, the Dow finished up just 39 points. The S&P lost 0.5%. NASDAQ tumbled 1.23%. Boy, at one point, the market was really smoking up 326 points. The hardest-hit stocks, well, they were the mega caps. They all took sizable hits. I think that was simply because they're so easy to sell and then get back in on Monday. With that in mind, why don't we go to the game plan? Next week is a pivotal period. While I think that everything will be overshadowed by what happens in Gaza, no doubt about it, this is still a very important week. It starts off with Charles Schwab. That's a stock that's become quite cheap. But people are concerned about its balance sheet. I think those fears are way overdone. Wall Street disagrees with me, which is why the stock has had a very hard time advancing. Maybe we can find out why. Tuesday's huge. It starts out with Bank of America, which should get a nice pop if it's, if it's anywhere near as good as Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan were today. I think that Goldman Sachs should have an excellent quarter. It's still in disposal mode, getting rid of extraneous business designs that aren't in keeping with a company that wants to become the key depository of the wealthy people of the world, as well as the king of underwriting and mergers and acquisitions. We know that our government's committed to helping Israel with military aid, which always seems to be a good, good news for Lockheed Martin. I think they can tell an excellent story here. We also get earnings from J&J on Tuesday morning. Lately, the company's been quiet about its tax litigation. I'll say it again. I don't think the stock can mount a serious rally until shareholders get some resolution because nobody wants to get stuck for all these lawsuits and wait for them to play out. Maybe the J&J, maybe they have some sort of announcement about a resolution. That'd be something. After the close, United Airlines reports that this group's had a decidedly mixed moment. Fuel costs are going higher. Tourist customers seem to be topping out. But the business travel is starting to return. Last time we came out positive about Delta after a post-earnings decline, that's the go-to name of the group. Wednesday completes the important bank reports when we hear from Morgan Stanley. This charitable trust name has become a horrendous holding for me. I can't believe it has fallen this low. That said, I think Morgan Stanley's a buy ahead of the quarter as they have a lot of good businesses beyond just wealth management. It is a shame what's happened to that stock. How about Procter? The consumer staples have all been ra- trading together and, and, and actually trading down because of these new GLP-1 anti-diabetes and weight loss drugs. Oddly, Procter and Gamble's come down with them because it's part of the consumer packaged goods group. Never mind that Procter's not in the food or beverage business. I think it's a mistake. One more reason why we own Procter for the Travel Trust and one more reason why we can find gains, you and I, because this stock's been lumped in like it's a, like it's a cereal company. How silly. Next, one of the greatest blue chips of our era is Abbott Labs, and that's been pummeled because it makes a glucose monitor 
for diabetes patients. The theory is that these new weight loss drugs will reduce obesity, leading to fewer cases of type 2 diabetes and thus less demand for these monitors. Now, I think the stock's been overly punished, though, and, and it, it has really lost much more in its market cap than it could lose in sales for the product. But I'm pretty lonely in my pro Abbott Labs position, so I have to be careful. After the close, we hear from two of the most important names for even the casual stock follower, and that's Netflix and Tesla. The setup's pretty negative for both of them, as we've been hearing lots of suboptimal commentary about each company. Netflix caught a downgrade today on what's thought to be a declining customer acquisition story. Tesla's all about the desire to cut price to levels where they can still make money, but others can't, except in China. That's not the best position to find yourself in. What else? Well, one of my old favorites, Lamb Research, is reporting that, they, look, they've been capturing a lot of attention lately because there's a strong possibility that semiconductor glut is finally over, meaning there might be more demand for Lamb's chip-making machines down here. Huge positive. The stock could turn out to be pretty cheap, even though it's had a big run. Thursday morning, we hear from ATT. Right now, it sells at about six times earnings with a 7.7% yield. I think that's actually a perilous situation, so I wouldn't touch it. If the stock pops, I'd blow it out. Oh, what the hell? I, I might just blow it out anyway. One I want to pay close attention to is Key Corp. It's run by Chris Gorman. He's very talented. Stock yields 7.8%, maybe emblematic of the well-run regional banks that nobody wants to own. Key is a conservative bank in a growth area. I think it deserves your attention. When Union Pacific reports Thursday morning, what I'm really going to do is try to hear about the up-to-minute reports about cargo volumes. That's a great barometer of all sorts of economic activity. We have Fed Chief Jay Powell talking on Thursday, too. And, I, I, look, I sure hope he sees some inflation diminution. I, I think it, 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 he'll say that inflation's not yet under control. We know that, although people will still be surprised that he says that. And that rates need to stay higher longer because of it. And people will still be surprised at that because people can be pathetic in their views of the market. Thursday night, we get results from Intuitive Surgical, ISRG, and I'm concerned about how this stock could get so hammered because of worries about these new weight loss drugs. Now, many of the surgeries doctors use or intuitive machines for turn out to be somewhat obesity-related. For example, they do this bariatric surgery, and I've got to believe that fewer people get that for weight loss if there's an injection that's nearly as effective. It, it had to be a big source of growth, and now I'm hearing that source of growth is slowing down. Everyone keeps trying to say that commercial real estate is going, going to crush the banks, right? So far, that is so far not so fast. That's just not right. We heard from a bunch of banks today. It wasn't true. If you want to know whether there's been a further degradation in office real estate, go listen to the SL Green Realty Conference call on Thursday afternoon. This is actually a pretty good company. As I handle on the real estate situation, even as short sellers like to treat it as a free fire zone. Friday, Friday's American Express Day, and it'll most likely give you some decent numbers. I know the consumer's getting tapped out, and that might impact the cadence of the quarter. But this company has so much going for it that its stock could be interesting down here. And we also have SLB reporting. Now, this is the oil service usually known as Schlumberger. I hope it doesn't cost, it didn't cost too much to come up with that uh, SLB moniker, as it really was just the stock symbol. Thanks to the recent run-up in crude, I bet SLB reports a terrific quarter. Here's the bottom line. The war with will continue to overshadow earnings season. But if you keep track of these companies and there's a cessation in the conflict, the market will eventually embrace the good ones. So keep track of them. It could come in handy. Let's go to Brent in Colorado. Please, Brent. Hey, Jim. First of all, thanks for all the help you give us out here. Thank you, Brent. Um, Hey, uh, you know, with the Lily-type drugs and weight-loss drugs, there's been a lot of focus, it seems like, on, um, you know, the snack companies losing market share, that type of thing. 
But on the other side of the coin, does that weight loss lead to new wardrobes, you know, new pants? So would Levi's, you know, benefit uh, with their increased earnings in the future? And would that be a good investment? All right, so Brent, that's a great question. I actually posed it to, uh, to Chip Berg, the CEO of Levi Strauss, this week, and the answer is yes. Uh, you're right. Uh, just like people gain too much weight during the, uh, the COVID epidemic, uh, people are losing a lot of weight with these, and they do have to go redo their wardrobe, and Levi's is going to be a winner. So I like your thinking. How about we go to Chris in Washington? Chris. Hey, Jim. Happy Friday. Oh, same to you. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Um, I've been looking at starting a position in a financial services company. I know the trust owns Morgan Stanley, but what do you think about T. Rowe, given its status as a dividend aristocrat? Okay, uh, I don't want you to, you know, look, here's where I am. The House of Pain. And I do not want you to enter the House of Pain, and that's, I think, what you'll have with T. Rowe. It's a very good company. I've known it for years, but it doesn't matter. This group is from Hades. Right. The war in Israel will continue to cast a shadow over stocks, but if we get any positive developments, I think the market will revert to the good stories that we'll hear from earnings season. On May Monday tonight, celebration of the first anniversary of last year's market-wide bottom, I'm taking a look at how the rallies unfolded and the stocks that have moved higher. Plus, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup all reported today. I'm breaking down the banks and what their earnings could mean for the overall market. Plus, I'll reveal where Black, where BlackRock's bankable Larry Fink sees opportunity in this market and what it could mean for your portfolio. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Today is the first anniversary of last year's huge market-wide bottom. The Dow, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ all made their intraday lows on October 13th. And what a year it has been since then. From the lows, the Dow's rallied more than 17%. SP shot up more than 24%. And the tech-laden NASDAQ surged almost 33%. That's not just a bottom. It's a Sir Mix-a-Lot bottom. So before we get into the thick of earnings season, I want to take some time to consider what really where we've come from over the past 12 months. We'll start with a big picture overview, and then we're going to drill down some of the individual stock winners after the break. But first, let's set the stage. When the market bottomed a year ago, it started with a big reversal day on October 13th in response to another overheated consumer price index report. Remember, I told you last night how important those are. Wall Street just got too negative at a time when long-term interest rates started going lower along with the value of the dollar, which has been putting pressure on a lot of uh, companies with big overseas businesses. Crucially, even though the averages made their intraday lows exactly one year ago, they were able to rally from those levels because the Fed finally started signaling it would be less aggressive with the rate hikes after one last triple rate hike in November. That was the fourth triple rate hike in a row. A year ago is when we started to realize that the Fed had made real progress tamping down inflation, even if they hadn't beaten it entirely, which they hadn't. Still, so it's just some pesky parts of it. A lot of people were worried that Chief Jay Powell would obliterate the economy, given the rapid pace of last year's rate hikes. Uh, but for 11-odd months, he's been much more measured in his approach. 
We got a double rate hike last December, then four more normal 25 basis point hikes in February, March, May, and July, with a skip between the final two tightenings and then another skip at the last Fed meeting in September. Even though Wall Street's gotten a lot more concerned about inflation again over the past few months, we're still much more sanguine about the situation than we were at the bottom a year ago. Of course, it's not just rate hikes. October of 2022 is when the recession fears peaked. Although they didn't really start going away until the spring. For the first half of the market's rebound, though, nearly everybody assumed we were going to head for a severe economic slowdown. I never joined the recessionista crowd, but I was sorely tempted when we uh, got hit with the mini banking crisis in March with the sudden collapse of Silvergate Bank, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Even eventually we got through that with no other real major bank failures, although that's only because J.P. Morgan was able to snap up the extremely troubled First Republic in May. That has a good brand name, though. I actually think the mini banking crisis was positive for the stock market because it forced the banks to pull back on lending, which is almost a de facto rate hike. At a time when everybody wanted the Fed to tamp down on inflation by raising interest rates, the banking industry ended up helping them a great deal. It also helped the mega caps, by the way. Now, the meat of the gains came from the past year, uh, came over the summer from May through July, as bearish investors gradually threw in the towel on their inevitable recession thesis, then scrambled to buy stocks that work in a more benign economy. At the end of May, there was a lot of consternation about the fact that while the S&P 500 was up 9% for the year at the time, just seven big tech stocks accounted for the entirety of that gain. Over the next couple of months, through the, the rally did broaden, and then a lot of the market really roared. But that was when the Magnificent Seven came, came to be. But August and September essentially served as a correction for some of the summer's excesses. After we stopped worrying about a recession, inflation started to flare up again, especially in energy prices. Meanwhile, long-term interest rates skyrocket. I've been telling you that they need to catch up with short rates for a long time now. But even I didn't expect the velocity of this move. The yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury is going from 3.75% in mid-July to just under 4.9% at its highs last Friday morning although it's now pulled back to 4.62. Suddenly, we were uh, back worrying about interest rate carnage causing a severe slowdown as inflation stubbornly sticks around. These themes just keep coming back. So that's where we've come from. But what's worked best during the year since the market bottom? First, obviously, tech's number one with the technology select spider SPDR fund up nearly 45% from last year's lows. That's incredible. Communications comes in second, up 41%. That's telecom and media, including major digital media outfits like Meta or Alphabet. The strength here is all about the mega caps. Other than that, uh, what groups outperformed the S&P 500? Well, you've got the industrials up 20%, consumer discretion up 14%, materials up 13%. I love seeing the cyclical stocks like the industrials and the materials performing well because that's a great sign for the economy. But these sectors both took it on the chin in August and September. That said, they've had some small bounces so far this month. Worth keeping an eye on now that the earnings season is upon us. As for the consumer discretionary rally, that catch-all category mass a wide range of performers. you got strong gains from many travel and gaming stocks, along with home builders and some off-price retail chains. After being by far the best performer in 2022, energy has lagged since the lows a year ago. But it's come back with a vengeance in recent months. That's why energy is still up almost 12% since the bottom. The financial and healthcare sectors both ground out respectable mid to high single-digit gains, but they couldn't keep pace with the S&P, and both groups remain in flux here, especially healthcare 
where the whole industry suddenly needs to confront the possibility of a world with a lot less obesity thanks to these miraculous and new GLP-1 medications. And of course, the governments become more hostile. Finally, the bond market equivalents, meaning groups with high dividend yields, real estate's up a measly 1%. The consumer staples are now down more than 1% after the recent sell-off for the packaged goods stocks. And the utilities have gone down roughly 4% because they've gotten annihilated by higher interest rates. Not only do their yields look less attractive versus bonds, but they also need to borrow lots of money to keep their machinery running and expand. And borrowing suddenly gotten way more expensive, so that's going to really nick their bottom lines. Bottom line itself. That was the 30,000-foot view of the market's recovery from the miraculous bottom we got exactly one year ago today. Stick around. After the break, I'll zoom in on some of the best individual stocks since the lows and see which of them have more juice to keep running. May have money's back in the break. Coming up, on Friday the 13th review of last year's market bottom continues. Is your portfolio headed to the top? Stick with Kramer. In celebration of the first anniversary of the last year's market-wide bottom, tonight we're taking a look at how the rally unfolded over the past 12 months. Before the break, I gave you a high-level view of the situation. But now let's talk individual stocks, which you know is what I really like to do. The best performers in the SP 500 since the index made its lowest close on October 12th of last year. We're going to go into descending order, starting with Kramer Fave, NVIDIA, up 295% over the last year. 200 and 95%. No wonder my late dog was named NVIDIA. And it trounced the second best performer, Meta Platforms, which was up 147% over the same period. Hey, looking back over the last 12 months, it's striking how hated these two stocks were at this time last year. Recall that NVIDIA just pre-announced a big quarterly revenue shortfall in early August of last year. Then it got hit with a ban on the sale of certain high-end chips to China no one expected. Hey, things look really ugly. But then ChatGPT debuted, it was, that was last November, and kicked off the whole generative AI craze. We quickly realized that NVIDIA's technology is what makes this all possible. We've been out there. We saw it for our own eyes. No one seemed to care, but then they did. Now, one year later, the only thing people remember about NVIDIA is the fact that it's guided multiple billion dollars above expectations for the past two quarters. And the only real constraint over the company's sales is its production capacity. Glad we own this one for the Chapel Trust and told CMEC Investing Club members to own it, not trade it. Meanwhile, when Meta Platforms reported in October of last year, its results were so bad that I felt compelled to issue a mea culpa on air, for, on squawk on the street for supporting a stock. Not long after that, though, the company announced the first of two usual uh, rounds of layoffs. Ultimately, they fired a quarter of the workforce. As Mark Zuckerberg told us, this is the year of efficiency. For workers, it became the year of living dangerously, by the way. Great movie. Uh, these days, it seems like the company can do no wrong. Meta's costs are under control. The digital ad market's recovering. The revenue's growing again. Maybe most importantly, they've got an open source code generation model called Llama 2. That's one of the most compelling AI applications out there right now. The lesson of Meta is this. Uh, when you're dealing with a great company that stumbled, you need to think about what could potentially go right to change the entire narrative. Because that's sure what happened here. Third best performer since the bottom is a bit of a surprise. It's called Fair Isaac. That's the company that's behind FICO scores, okay? With a, with a stock that is up just 120%. 
for Isaac's, Fair Isaac's ridden a strong housing market higher, and they also have a late, a lesser-known predictive software as a service business that helps companies with their decision making. Unfortunately, it's very hard to recommend this one with mortgage rates and verging on eight percent because you know housing is going to get hit, right? In fact, I would actually ring the register on this one. Number four is General Electric, up 117 percent over the past year after many years of underperformance and constant setbacks. GE finally got its act together. They've already spun off GE Healthcare, which we own for the trust, and they'll spin off the power business at GE Vernova next year, at which point you'll have an incredibly attractive aerospace pure play left over that will be run by Larry Culp, one of the best in the business. The fifth best name in the S&P, oh, another charitable trust name called Broadcom. It's up 105% for the lows. This semiconductor and software company is one of the less appreciated AI winners. One reason why we recently added to the trust, which you can follow, by the way, by joining the CBC Investing Club. Going forward, Broadcom needs to close on its $61 billion acquisition of VMware, which should happen before the end of the month. That's a nice software business with a big AI kicker that is growing like mad. Next up, we got a semiconductor capital equipment maker. They the machines that make semis. That's called Lambert Search. We've talked about it for a long time. It's up 99% from a year ago. Oh, and Applied Materials, which is the same business, was number 11, up almost 86%. These are interesting because while semiconductor markets have been bottoming in recent quarters, that's been a bumpy process. Lamb and Applied Materials are good reminders that you need to get into the semiconductor equipment stocks before the semiconductor industry turns when there's still too much inventory because if you waited well you would have missed these incredible moves seventh place another kramer fave is adobe up 92 percent and that is just a clear ai winner adobe's introduced whole new ai products like firefly which allows users to edit media with simple english language prompts it's incredible they also started to infuse the rest of the software industry with with ai functionality they showcased a lot of this stuff just last week at their adobe max event Terrific event, by the way. I recommended this one less than a month ago when it was at $532 after a very unjustified pullback. And I hope you listen because it's already back up to just under $550 and was higher still. Wouldn't be surprised if Adobe's got more room to run. Number eight, an odd one, Royal Caribbean. Yes, it's gained about 90% even after the stock's pulled back substantially from its highs in late July. This move is all about the travel boom. The long on money, short on time thesis. Bookings have been very strong this year. But the problem with Royal Caribbean and the other cruise stocks is that it can be ridiculously volatile. They're hated then, they're loved then, they're hated right now. We're in the hated part of the cycle. Because Wall Street just is just not sure if people will keep taking cruises like they did in the, in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic, especially now that we're feeling the pinch from inflation and a possible slowing economy. I'm somewhat more sanguine about Royal Caribbean than most, though, because cruises represent great value from vacation at a mostly fixed price. What's not to like? So don't be surprised if bookings hold up better than expected, even in a weaker economy. Oh, I love to see Eli Lilly make the top performing list with a nearly 88% gain over the past year. This runs all about Munjaro. That's Lilly's revolutionary diabetes drug that will almost certainly get approval for weight loss, along with a ton of other indications, miracle medication, frankly. Hey, by the way, Lilly's had flawless execution pushing forward its pipeline, which includes an Alzheimer's treatment that I remain cautiously optimistic about. We bought this stock for the trust because of the Alzheimer's drug, only to be pleasantly surprised by Munjaro. Amazing. Finally, there's one home builder that made the top 10, and that's Pulte Group, snuck in with an 87% gain from the bottom. We know the home builders remain strong in the face of the Fed's relentless rate hikes for more, much longer than anyone thought, right? In part because we've had such an untenable housing shortage. Now the home builder stocks are pulling back from their highs. 
including Pulte, because 8% mortgage rates are bad for business. That said, we still have a huge housing shortage. That's not being cured. So it's hard to get too negative on this group. I think there's a natural floor under them, even though others were chattering all day about how bad they're doing and how low they'll go. Bottom line. Those are the 10 best performers since the market bottom a year ago. I think some of them can keep winning here, but some have definitely lost their loss. We're in a world where rates are soaring again, and we're increasingly worried, once again, about the economy. Let's go to Roy in California. Roy. Hey, Jimmy Chill. The chill's in the house. Yeah, I tried to be witty here with this old Jerry Lewis, Tony Curtis movie called Boing Boing. I like that movie. It was I funny. I talk to it. Yeah, well... It's not so funny what I'm looking at with this stock situation with Boeing. No, it's I got not. It 217, and now it's down to 185. And I'm, you know, I'm carpeting. Someone has to be, to Roy, someone has to be account for this. Someone has to be held account for this. I mean, there are only two of these guys. There's a lot of travel. They can't seem to put these things behind them. I think if you're going to run this company, what you have to do is you have to be on the factory floor. You rotate factory floor, then factory floor, then factory floor. You can't be holed up. You've got to be on the floor. And you can't be just in Washington. And if that happened, I think you'd inspire people and you would make sure that these things did not happen. I'm not sure that what I described is actually happening at Boeing. How about Sandy in Arizona? Sandy! Jim, how are you? I'm doing well, First Sandy. How about you? Ah. I'm fine. First time caller, long time listener, Excellent. investment club member. Yes. Jim, yes. Jim, um, you know, in, in our generation, oil is never going to go away. So I'm heavily invested in oil. But there's one company, that major company that I, I'm having my doubts about, and I want your expertise. Uh, this, this week was reported a whale with a lot of money to spend has taken a bullish stance on Chevron. Chevron between the bulls and the bears is almost split down the middle. Asset test ratio, 1.125. Annual dividend, 3.75. Market cap, 307 billion. Beta, 1.1. 10.3 PE ratio. Every time the market goes down, this stock of all my oils swings down. The delta is just right. like off the charts. No, it is. Then, You've got that right. Here's what you do. Do I, do I hold or sell? No, you buy. I know that's contrary to what you just said, but this thing sells at 10 times earnings. Mike Worth is as good as he gets. They're spewing the cash. They've got a giant buyback. I actually feel quite sanguine about the stock of, of, of Chevron. I really do. All right, after going through these top 10 performers since the last year's bottom, some of them have indeed lost their luster. The housing ones I don't really care for. That being said, there are some names on this list that can definitely keep winning from here. And you know that the investing club follows a couple of them and you can just zone in, belong to them, and you'll do well. There's much more man money ahead. After a strong post-earnings pop, the banks are paired early gains today. Oh, they were screaming higher at one point. I'm breaking down what it means for the overall market. Plus, this morning I asked BlackRock's Larry Fink why things are so perilous in this market. I'll reveal what his answer could signal when it comes to your next investment. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Today, earnings season kicked off with the first few big banks. That's Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Chase, and Wells Fargo. You know what? They all turned into third quarter numbers. I like what I saw. Every three months, I like to focus on the big bank reports, not just because we own Wells Fargo for the Travel Trust, but because these companies can really tell us a great deal about the broader economy. And that matters to set up our worldview of what stocks to pick. Nobody has a better read on business than the banks. 
Now, this is a tricky time for the financial industry. The banks have been just hammered by increased regulatory scrutiny, something J.P. Morgan is very good at helping me understand, in the wake of the mini-crisis back in March, although that's more of a problem for the regionals now than the big ones. At the same time, we've seen an insanely sharp rally in long-term interest rates bond going lower since July, and we've also got fresh worries about the state of the consumer. So what did we learn this morning when we got the results from these first three banks? Let's take them one by one. Why don't we start with Wells Fargo, which we own for the Travel Trust, and I have flogged relentlessly to own for club members. This just so happens to be the bank stock that reacted most positively to earnings, with shares up more than 3% today. Overall, Wells Fargo delivered a much better than the first quarter. I mean, wow, it got a big revenue beat, strongly anticipated uh, net interest income and non-interest income. Even better, the earnings surged thanks to a decline in non-interest expenses. Although I'd love to see the expenses come down even further. So with higher revenue, with lower expenses, that's always a recipe for a good banking quarter, for, for any quarter. How did Wells pull it off? Well, uh, while they're, they increased their allowance for credit losses, primarily for commercial real estate office loans, they're taking much less of a hit from de- deadbeat borrowers than anyone could have expected at this point in the cycle, a lot better than last quarter. While Wells Fargo's tangible book value came in a bit light, it was still up over 9% year over year. Tier 1, common equity, better than expected. This one's important because they need to maintain those capital levels or else the regulators won't let them continue returning cash to shareholders in the form of buybacks or dividends. The buyback is, by the way, a huge part of the story. On the conference call, Wells Fargo's no-nonsense CEO Charlie Scharf noted that his banks, quote, seeing the impact of the slowing economy with loan balances declining and charge-offs continuing to deteriorate modestly, end quote. But he also painted a more constructive picture on the U.S. economy, saying the economy has continued to be resilient with key support from the labor market and strength in consumer spending. Really positive. Put it all together, Wells delivered a modestly better-than-expected quarter across a host of important line items. Given its legacy issues, remember, Sharps orchestrated a comeback after years of mismanagement. Wells Fargo graded on a curve, so a clean beat will usually allow the stock to fly, hence the 3% run today. I bet it's got more room to run because Charlie Sharps seemingly has passed all the consent degrees that the previous now-disgraced regime left him. Next is the biggest bank in the country, J.P. Morgan. These guys deliver very solid top and line bottom, uh, top and bottom line beat, really terrific. Three of J.P. Morgan's four segments, everything except the corporate and investment banks, reported stronger than expected revenues. Meanwhile, the bank's overall net interest income was comfortably ahead of what Wall Street was looking for, up 30 percent year over year, or 21 percent when you exclude the impact of the first Republic acquisition, which I think, by the way, seems pretty shrewd right now. Management also raised their full year net interest income forecast by one point five billion, which ain't nothing. There was a lot to like here. While corporate investment banking was weaker, uh, was, let's say weak, uh, that was mainly due to sales and trading, especially stock trading. The actual investment bank did better than anticipated. But the truth is there's not much surprise here because the numbers from J.P. Morgan are always pretty solid. It's that good a bank. The swing factor in any given uh, quarter is the conference call commentary from CEO Jamie Dimon. Given his purchase at the head of the largest bank in America, we're always curious about what he sees about the economy and the consumer, especially when the banks are under the microscope. In the earnings release, Dimon was quoted as saying, uh, currently U.S. consumers and businesses generally remain healthy, although consumers are spending down their excess cash buffers, end quote. He also gave us some insight on inflation. Listen to this, quote, Persistently tight labor markets as well as extremely high government debt levels with the largest peacetime fiscal deficits ever are increasing the risk that inflation remains elevated and the interest rates rise further from here, end quote. That's not what you want to hear, but it's also truth. 
But if Diamond's particularly worried about the state of the country or the world's overall, his bank sure sure didn't show it. Uh, it, it they were reserving that very light for, I thought, credit losses because they're very, I think they're very more optimistic than they sound. Despite his cautious commentary, J.P. Morgan reported loan loss provision of just $1.38 billion for the quarter, almost a full billion dollars below what analysts are looking for. I was shocked at that. It was also less than half of the $2.9 billion provision, provision for credit losses that J.P. Morgan had the previous quarter. This was the main driver of the upside surprise, by the way. All told, it was a nice, solid beat, and the stock gave you a nice, solid rally. At one point, it was up huge. Stay as she goes for the nation's largest bank. Finally, let's talk about Citibank. That's a redheaded stepchild of the group, but one I haven't liked for a long time, which turned in its first quarter since announcing a major reorganization just last month. It was an unremarkable set of numbers from Citi, which is why the stock did next to nothing, finishing the day down 10 cents. To be fair, Citi posted a 29-cent earnings beat off a $1.23 basis with higher than expected revenue. As with Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan, Citi also had strong net interest income and lower than anticipated credit loss provisions, all positive. Just like J.P. Morgan, they upped their full-year net interest income forecast substantially. So then why does the stock do nothing? Well, Citi's core net interest income came in light, and CEO Jane Fraser gave some cautious commentary on the consumer. But really, with Citi undertaking a major restructuring, the company's not going to get as much credit for anything good because so much is set to change here. The restructuring's still the story, not the numbers. Now, after these first three quarters from the big banks, I got a couple of major takeaways. First, I'm happy to see all of them posting strong net interest income. That matters tremendously to me. After the many banking crisis in the spring, Wall Street was terrified the banks were going to get it all upside down with their bond investments, leaving them unable to capitalize on higher rates. But with Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, and Citi going three for three on net interest income beats today, clearly those concerns were overblown. Second, at a time like this, where there are broader recession worries, you've got to be concerned about the bank's credit quality. That's why the single biggest positive revelation of the day, again from all three banks, was the, most, was the much lower provision for credit losses. If things were truly getting worse, those provisions would be going up, not down. It seems like the banks got ahead of any softness in the economy with some large provisions in the previous quarter. So now they can relax as their own fears aren't coming true. Bottom line, between the higher net interest income and the lower provisions for credit losses, you get plenty of reasons to feel really good about the big banks today. Let's hope we hear more from the same when we got a bunch of them next week. Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time to light on Kim's Red Sun Breakfast. I'm going to tell you about my self as much just here. And of course, it's time to be playing us out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Got it. Time for the lightning round. Crimson round. We're going to start with Ian in Florida. Ian. Hey, Jim. Booyah from Miami Beach. Fantastic. I love it down there so much. What's going on? Uh, living in paradise, that's all. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not living in paradise. Oh, you know. <laughs> Jim, I'm a two-time caller and a very happy Investor Club member. Yes! Go ahead. Thank Sorry. want to thank you for all that you do. Thank you. So, um, on a recent pullback, Jim, I got some shares of this around... $200 a share. Um, I love the company. I know it's part of the investor club. What are your thoughts on uh, Salesforce? 
It's ridiculous that the stock is down this much from after surprises. Surprises with an amazing quarter. It was up to 228. It's come all the way down. I remain convinced that Salesforce is going to have a dynamite 2024. Let's go to Joe in Illinois. Joe. Joe, booyah, Jim. Joe booyah. Stock is Portillo's. All right, I like Portello's, and when I went to lunch there, when my wife and I were selling her plus four zero at Binnie's, uh, I thought it was terrific. But I did not like the fact that the insiders, the uh, uh, private equity guys, were just blowing out of the stock. Well, it looks like I was right, and now we got to wait for this thing to settle down because I can't tell you just goodbye right now. Let's go to Trace in California. Trace, booyah, Jim. How you doing Booyah's. today? I'm doing well. How about you, Trace? Very well, sir. Today's question regards Mid-America apartment community. Uh, real estate, real estate REIT that only yields four. I'm not going to, I find that not good enough. I need more yield if I'm going to take a stab at that one. Let's go to Brooks in North Carolina. Brooks. Brooks speaking. Yes, Brooks, help me. But this he got it. company has lost a lawsuit of $495 million, and they were getting ready to, to issue some debt securities. Is energy transfer a buy? Yeah, it's still a buy. I think it yields eight. I think you can go all the way down to six yield, which means it has to go up a lot. They've done a very good job. And I used to be very critical of Kelsey Warren, and I am no longer. Let's go to Mitchell in Texas. Mitchell. Yo, Kramer. How we doing, man? I am doing well. How about you, Mitchell? Hey, I'm doing awesome, man. Hey, I got a stock for you. It's down uh, tremendously. It hasn't been this cheap in, I think, 20 years or so. Um you know, yes, they have tons of lawsuits that they're dealing with. They have the free cash flow to cover. Um, I want to know what you think about 3M. This and- thing's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, this is a dividend aristocrat. It just keeps getting hammered. A lot of people feel these forever chemicals, are they're going to have to keep writing checks. I am no longer involved with situations where I feel that the companies are much more like law firms. I can't be there. I also include J&J in that mix. Let's go to Nick in Florida. Nick. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. Nick in nice. Florida. And I have a question regarding an embroiled issue with an What's upcoming that? election and all that's being said about pharmaceutical stocks and the government getting involved. I'm sitting here with my brother, Kerry, and we're wondering about a company, a company that has a forward P.E. of 13, an attractive yield of 4 percent and the recent acquisition adding to their pipeline. What do you think at this particular time before an election about AbbVie? Uh, you know, I just can't rave about AbbVie. I mean, they haven't done nearly enough as they thought with some of the new products. Uh, and I, I'm frankly, I'm astonished that the company won't talk about it. I used to really like it. I thought they would come on air. I thought we'd be able to talk about it. The company's not interested. That's not my style. Not at this point. I do not play for dinner. If I ask you to come on the show and I am honest and respectable, you ought to come on the show. And I am very respectful of Abby, but it just didn't work. And I'm not quite sure what that says. Let's go to Michael in Texas, please. Michael. Hi. Booyah, Kramer. Love your show. Love CNBC. Oh, thank you. We do a good job at the network. How can I help? Yeah, uh, I've been I've been a uh, really good investor at Iron Mountain IRM for quite a while, and I wanted to switch his thoughts on that stock. Is I think it's very good. I mean, look, I remember with six percent yield. Of course, that was because the stock was lower. I think they do a very good job. It's a very steady eddy company. I really like it. Let's go to Joe in Alabama. Joe. Yes, uh, Jim. Uh, booyah. Booyah, man. What's up? Go, go Phillies. Yeah. Oh my God, love, we looked so good last love, night. Love that game last night. Yeah, that was a fun game. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 
I got a question for you on, on yeah. Kia and, and Empire State uh, Realty Trust. Kia yeah. Or keep it? I think that one's time to. Yeah, I would ring the register on that. You've had a nice game. Let's just move on to something better. How about uh, Paresh in Tennessee? Paresh. Hey, Jim Booyah from Music City of Nashville. Oh, I got to get there. Some of my best friends are there. A couple of people moved from here. How can I help? Awesome, awesome. Hey, just want to let you know that you, sir, are a credit to the community. So continue Thank doing you. what you're doing. Thank you Thank very you. much. I sure, I sure am. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, of course, a very good luck to my beloved India who plays Pakistan today in World Cup. And very quickly, my question is about Oracle. Stock has come down about 10% uh, after the earnings. Oh, you got to buy Oracle. I'm telling you, just buy Oracle. I was surprised. I told Jeff Marks, my partner for uh, from my Chapel Trust, that this is a great level to buy it. We have a ton. I want to buy more. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, the world according to Larry Fink. The BlackRock CEO dished some wisdom this morning. Kramer shares it next. It is so easy to be negative in this business. I mean, that's certainly how it feels when you listen to most of the experts who come on our network, especially from the stultified billionaire class. The super rich have a different perspective on money, and it's not useful to even the regular rich, let alone the middle class. Now, I'm not backsliding in my Marxist face. I just hate getting financial advice from billionaires because they rarely, if ever, have anything remotely positive to say about the market. They almost always see they, they're addicted to the word perilous, as in this is the most perilous time in history. So you better not buy a thing. You get insanely rich and then you slam the door on the rest of us. Thanks for nothing. And then there's Larry Fink the CEO of BlackRock, which has more than $9 trillion of assets under management. First of all, Larry's a delight. He's thoughtful, he's funny, he's wise, and arguably the smartest person in the business. That's, by the way, is an epithet you hear about him every time you talk to someone who's met him and spent any time with him. This morning, Carl Quintedy and I were talking to Larry about the world. Just had reported a quarter, it's another good one. And we asked him why the market's been so strong if everything's so darn perilous. His answer, two parts. First, Larry said, it's not that perilous. Surely there are plenty of things going wrong, horribly wrong, like the war in Ukraine, Israel versus the Hamas. Uh, He repeatedly stressed that war is terrible. But his second point, Larry sees many things that can offset the wartime negativity, at least when it comes to investing. For example, people spend lots of time talking about which companies will be hurt by Ozempic and the other new diabetes slash weight loss drugs. Isn't that the wrong framework, he asked? Shouldn't we focus on how many lives will be prolonged? How many saved? We, we should treat these anti-obesity drugs the same way we treat the anti-Alzheimer drugs that are coming. As Larry put it, we may be solving obesity, which is a major problem of so, of, of so many problems. And so I'm more optimistic than ever. The impact, he said, could be so positive, so world-ordering in terms of how we look at life expectancy that we actually may need to rethink our whole approach to stocks versus bonds, simply because we'll be living longer on average. When you live longer, you need more equity exposure to make sure you're provided for in the out years. I want you to take a listen to something else that Larry said this morning. I'm a hopeful person. I believe that in 10 years and 20 years, humanity is in a better position than it is today. With that view, 
I want to own hard assets. I want to own equities. I want to be a part of this economy. Now, Larry's a realist. He's very concerned about our country's relations with China and how that relationship being recalibrated, which creates a great deal of stress. He said our government has woken up the idea that we've developed what he called an asymmetrical relationship, and China hasn't lived up to its obligations, which has to change. He railed that China, quote, is still supporting our enemy in Russia. And he added, quote, if China was a corporation and they were dealing with our enemy, we would consume our business elsewhere. But what matters to Larry is that there are opportunities all over the globe. Right now, there's a ton of money going into Japan, something I didn't know on. Now i got to dig into. Of course, he also talked about India as being very positive. The reshoring of business is a huge trend. He knows that the infrastructure rebuild will be good for our country, especially because the only way to deal with our gigantic budget deficit is to grow the economy out of it. Like everyone else at a certain age, I always wish my parents were alive. Because if they were, I could hear my dad saying, hey, that Larry Fink, he's a man of the world. We should listen to him. And my mother saying, he seems like such a nice guy. Both are true. What a godsend. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise trying to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you next time. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.